0: The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Father, we do pray that you will guide us as we look into your word, continue to worship you with our attention to you and our open ears to you. Thank you for the privilege we have of contemplating your word. And we thank you that your spirit is here to be our teacher and our guide. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you so much for your prayers uh, again this morning. It is a joy to be back here with you. I've been here in the past, but it's been a while, maybe a couple years or more. So great to be here and reconnect with many of you and meet some new friends. And I'm really appreciative of your church. You're a great encouragement to me every time I come or watch you online just to hear how the Word of God is being proclaimed and taught and the emphasis on the gospel and the clear proclamation of God's Word. It's a great example to me. That's what I aim to do in our state capital as a missionary there. And then to have your partnership with me means so much to me that you're a church that's been praying for me for all these years and uh, helping me uh, to do what I do as a missionary of the church, I guess you would say, and I'm honored and grateful for that, and many of you are personal friends and supporters in various ways, so thank you. And you're all invited to come to the Capitol, uh, not to yell and scream, but to come and um, be there if you'd like to attend the Bible study on Wednesdays at noon, that's open to the public, as well as for staff and lobbyists, or to be there whatever day, um, probably a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday if you'd like to come out and meet with me and I'll show you around the Capitol and, and tell you more of what I do if you'd like to hear about that. But I'm just uh, honored to be here again to be able to share God's word with you and to tell you a little bit about what I do in the Capitol. So thank you again. But, you know, as I'm in the Capitol and as I also speak in churches uh, quite a bit, you know, I often just hear comments from people saying, how do you do what you do, Frank, um, Uh, and I love to hear the way people describe what I do. One person said, you're there in the heart of darkness. Another person said, you're really in the thick of it, aren't you? And someone else said, you're there in the belly of the beast. In fact, I've heard that one a lot. And then more recently, someone said, well, you're in the devil's playpen, aren't you? So, uh, and then one woman, I met at a church. I'd never met her before. She says, I've never met you, but I've heard about you for years, and it's Wonderful to meet you. I've always felt sorry for you, uh, so uh, that's that's my calling. Um, as I go into the Capitol, as we mentioned, I so appreciate your prayers. And by the way, if if you'd like to get on my update list, I don't send out very many, but occasionally I'll send out a ministry update. Just look for me, Frank Herb. It's E R B. Frank Herb, pastor to the Capitol. And uh, you'll find my website, which is actually frankherb.org or .com, and you can sign up to get updates there. Or just contact me. Give me a call or drop me an email or see me today. Give me your email address. I'd be honored to keep you updated. But as I go into the Capitol, uh, it is not an easy place to serve. Uh, not that any place is. But um, this has its unique challenges. And there are many passages from God's Word that I look to to be clear about what I'm doing there, and to be encouraged as I serve, and to guide me in it. And I think these passages really are helpful for all of us, uh, maybe even increasingly so, as we try to serve the Lord in this world. And one of them that has been a great encouragement to me is Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. So, I'd love to share that passage with you, Philippians 2, 14 through 16, and just kind of hop around in these few verses to look at some things that it says that will encourage us as we aim to shine for the Lord in what we might call a world of darkness. Philippians 2, starting in verse 14, I'll read from the ESV, but. Whatever translation you have, or if it's on the screen or whatever, feel free to follow along. The Apostle Paul is writing here to the followers of Jesus in Philippi, and he says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for all of us really, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God, without blemish, In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We'll just stop with that and take a look at these few verses. I'm sure you've read Paul's letter to the Philippians. What an encouraging part of God's word, isn't it? But here in these passages, what stands out to me is that it is a guideline for us in how we can, as I said, so to speak, shine in a world of darkness. And we see some helpful answers here. We'll break it down into three, three points that people often commonly see in this passage. And it is these three. Number one, we remember where we are. Number two, we remember who we are. And number three, we remember what we're doing. Where, who, what. So first of all, in this passage, it's a reminder of where we are. Where do we live? And the Apostle Paul writing here says to them that you are, he says to them, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Crooked is a translation of the Greek word scolios, from which we get the English medical term scoliosis to describe a curvature of the spine, right? Twisted could be translated as perverted or distorted from what it should be. So it's the idea that something is crooked from the norm and perverted, distorted, twisted. That's the generation. That they were in, the Apostle Paul says. This described his generation well. Now he was probably getting this term from Deuteronomy 32 5, because many centuries prior to him, Moses used similar wording to describe the culture of his time. In Deuteronomy 32 5. And then in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, it describes the people of that day in this way. It says, those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the way of darkness, Proverbs 2.13, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked, whose ways are crooked and who are devious in their paths. And then Jesus described the Israelites of his day in Matthew 17.17 and Luke 9 as a faithless and twisted generation and this description then certainly also fit the world that the first century Philippians were living in when Paul wrote to them I'm fascinated to study the Roman Empire because increasingly I think it describes where we're headed the Roman Empire in the first century was a place of widespread and commonplace immorality had sexual deviancy, and oppression, and injustice, and corruption, and violence. There were temples to gods everywhere, all kinds of gods and goddesses, hundreds of them, thousands of them, and then the Roman emperors themselves sometimes demanded to be worshipped as a god. And this was, of course, pre-Christianity. There was no cultural acceptance of Christianity at the time Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians. None. Christians were very few in number. And just 10 years earlier, the Apostle Paul had been there and led them to the Lord, which we can read about in the book of Acts, and started this first church in all of Europe. And so these Christians were used to being a small, tiny minority group in a world that had no interest in their God and that disregarded them and rejected them and oppressed them. And in the midst of this, Paul wrote this letter To them to encourage them. Uh, And they were a major Greek city. They were uh, surrounded by the things of the Roman Empire in their day. As Paul wrote this, he though was a prisoner of that culture, a prisoner of the government under house arrest in Rome, awaiting a decision from the corrupt judges and maybe even from the psychotic world ruler, Nero himself. So that's the world of the Philippians, who he was writing to. And it's similar to our world. It's really similar to every generation. I think we could say every generation is a crooked and twisted generation. That's just the nature of humanity apart from God. And it fits for our generation too. And some would say, increasingly, it seems to be the case. What's going on? Well, it really helps me to understand that the world of the New Testament was pre-Christian. There was almost no Christianity throughout the world. So when the followers of Jesus were trying to follow him there, they were a minority group that nobody understood. And then God would bring, one at a time, bring people into their number to be saved. But they were completely outnumbered and in a twisted and perverse Culture, And we today are in a post-Christian culture, I would say, increasingly so. And what's happening, as I mentioned, is I think today the world is just increasingly, I can see it kind of year by year happening more and more, becoming what was happening in pre-Christian times. So I feel like I know where we're going culturally because we can study the first century and see where we've been. And as we reject the God of the Bible, reject Jesus, his son, the world's just going to become more like it was until that message of God and Jesus became the primary philosophical basis for the Western world. Or maybe the whole world, we could say. And so it's kind of becoming like we read in Judges twenty-one twenty-five where it says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's what's happening at our state capitol. That's what's happening at our U.S. capitol more often than not. People say, well, what do I think? What benefits me? What seems wise to me? They do what is right in their own eyes with no regard for what God has said, right? And so I'm finding when I'm in the capitol, and now it's been many years, as I said, and increasingly what i Think I'm seeing is this increasing change in the mindset to be more and more post-Christian. And so when I speak to people about God, I have to go a little deeper, and I would encourage you to do the same, to find out if they do believe in God, then ask what God they believe in. Try to get them to define their God. If they do believe in Jesus, tell me about Jesus. What we find, I think, if we go a little deeper into the conversation, just a couple more follow-up questions, is that even if someone says they believe in God, it may be a different God. If they say they believe in Jesus, it may be a different Jesus. And so we should never assume anymore that the people we're talking to have the same ideas that we do about God, about Jesus, about the world. And so I'm very aware that I'm entering a non-Christian, ungodly environment. And yet in the midst of that, I get to see the Lord at work. And what a wonderful, beautiful thing that is. And, and I often have staff members whispering to me, pray for us. And then what they'll say often, I've heard this more times than I can count, pray for us. It's so dark in here. That's how they'll put it. It's so dark in here. Help. Pray. We're so discouraged. We're weary. And even legislators will say that. Both sides of the aisle to me. Just this last week. In fact, just this last week, I've had two legislators say to me, uh, you know, we just had about a third of our legislature became new, newly elected. And they said, two of them said, do any of them believe in God? Well, some do, but not as many as you would like. Have a faith in the one true and living God. But we shouldn't be alarmed. I think people often are panicked and alarmed. And I can start to get that way sometimes. And then I come back to God's Word and go, wait, it'll be okay. Uh, This is not new. This is normal for how it's been for a lot of people throughout the world. This culture that we're in now is actually much more Christian than the culture of the Philippians. We still have the, the... remnants of a Christian culture, and they had none of that. So we should actually think, wow, we have it really good. And what about all the sin we hear about and learn about? Well, here's how one person put it. There are no new sins. The old ones are just getting more publicity now. I think that's correct. As I study history, there's nothing new under the sun including sin. People aren't coming up with anything new to sin about. And all of the things, probably, that would concern us today were happening in some form at the time that the Philippians were serving Christ in the first century. So I think if they were here talking to us or the Apostle Paul, they'd say, are you kidding? You have it really easy. (laughs) But yes, it's a twisted and crooked generation. So What do we want to do? We want to know that, be aware of that. And then we also want to remember who we are, though. The passage Philippians 2 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So, who are we? We're children of God, unlike the others unlike those who don't believe in the Lord. What an honor. You probably know that not everybody is a child of God. Well, I'm, I'm kind of sensitive to that. I'll often hear people say, well, we're all God's children. Everybody in the world's God's children. Well, actually, biblically, it says everybody is, is created by God. Everybody's created in the image of God. Right? All people are to be respected and honored because of that. But everyone is not a child of God. Only those who have been born again and adopted into God's family are his children. And how does that happen? Right, John 1.12, As many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe or trust in his name. Wow. Wow. What an honor. Has that happened to you? Trust it has, but if you're not sure that you're a child of God, it's about that. It's about saying, Father God, I want to be, I want you to be my father. I want to be in your family. That's the way I came to trust in Christ as a teenager, growing up in a church family, but then as a teenager, I realized I didn't really have a close connection with God, if any connection, and I got alone and I said, As I read the word, I said, Lord, if what I'm reading here could happen for me, I want that. I want that connection with you that the people in this book had. And as I prayed that, something was changing. I was trusting in Christ, and I knew something had changed. And what was changing is I was instantly brought into his family, and the Spirit of God was there in me. Has that happened to you? Because if it has, then you could say, God is my father. He's not just the man upstairs. I was in the Capitol speaking with our lieutenant governor, actually, about something. And I asked for, if we were actually trying to get permission to get a room for one of our Bible studies. I said, could you do anything about that? And she says, well, she says, that's beyond me. That's up to the man upstairs. I said, well, do you mean the governor who's on the ninth floor? Or uh, in the new office tower that they're all in? Or do you mean God? <laughs> she says, no, I, I mean the governor. <laughs> so I have to ask in the Capitol when people say the man upstairs. But God is more than just the distant being, right? He's our father. But he's also, what, the king. That's a political term. It's a government term. We think of it sometimes as a religious term because we don't have a lot of kings around here. But back in the days when that was written, right, kings ruled countries. So equivalent term today would be the president or the prime minister or whatever you want to call it. And it would be what we're used to. And there's some kings still. But he's our king because he's the king of the highest government. He's the ruler of all. And he's... Our father, but our father is the king, and he's also called what? The Lord, kurios in Greek. Lord, that's another government term. Nobody who read the Bible in the first century heard the words king or Lord as religious terms. These were government terms. In fact, some of the emperors demanded to be the only one called Lord. And a uh, a lot of early believers, I should say, in the first centuries, We're confronted with that where the government leaders hauled them in and said, all you have to do to get out of trouble is take some incense and light this candle or or take this flame and light some incense and all you have to say is one phrase. Caesar is Lord. Some believers did say it. They were known by the others as confessors, if I'm not mistaken. They were the ones who Kind of profess Caesar as Lord and were somewhat shamed for that later. But it's understandable why they'd feel such pressure. But many did not, would not say Caesar as Lord. And many of them went to their death because Jesus is our Lord. We trust in Him alone and want to please Him above all. And so I go into the Capitol and I remind myself, this place is intimidating, it's designed to intimidate with the fancy buildings, with the power, the displays of power, the wealth. And then, you know, especially in our Capitol, I would say, you know, our, our California state Capitol, many people don't realize, here we are as kind of a city on the outskirts of the Capitol, a town on the outskirts here. You know, we live, and I live in Roseville, so we all live in kind of a... a, a the general region of the capital, which is, I would say, the political and social policy epicenter for the most powerful, most populous, most influential state in the most powerful nation on earth. Again, we live in the political and social policy epicenter for the most populous. You know, we're... We're about one-eighth, one-ninth of the U.S. population as Californians. Most populous, most influential, I would say, state of the most powerful nation on earth. So we live in a key, key region of the United States, which is the most powerful nation on earth. And because of our population, we send more people to U.S. Congress than any other state. A lot of states have three, four, five, six, seven U.S. Congress members, we have 54, okay? And it's no mistake then that the second in line to be, well, how will we say this? First in line to be president, should anything happen to our president, would be Kamala Harris, who's a Californian, and then after her would be Kevin McCarthy, who's a Californian. It's because of the influence of California. And then our government leaders rub shoulders with those who are the most influential in Hollywood, making the media for the world. We're the leading export of media. And Silicon Valley, the leading exporter of technology for the world. And our Central Valley is the leading exporter of agriculture in the world. So California is a world-changing place. It would be as if we lived in the leading region of the Roman Empire outside of Rome, Italy in the days of the New Testament. This is an influential strategic place that we live in. Philippi was an influential strategic place also. It was a leading city of the Greek world and of the Roman Empire. And so it's good for us to know, and as I go into the capital, I think, okay, so here I am in this place with all this power and emphasis on it, but I remind myself, I am here representing the greatest king, the king of kings, the president of presidents, if you will the ruler of the highest government, which oversees all and is holding everybody to account. Nobody is escaping notice of this king and this government. And uh, so I can be at peace because this government, the highest government, is doing really well. (laughs) I mean, it's doing great. This king is not stressed out at all about what's going on. He's not worried, he's not afraid, he's not, he's, he's, his kingdom is fine and he's ruling and reigning. He's sovereign over all. And he's allowing people to have their government. And, you know, Romans 13 says earthly government is created by God. He wants there to be earthly government. And it actually says in Romans 13 that government leaders are servants of God. Well, how could that be? How could they be servants? I told them this. You know you're a servant of God. How could that be? And by the way, the word servants there is the same word the Apostle Paul uses for his ministry as a servant of God. So how could government leaders in Romans 13 be servants of God? Well, the way I think of it is just some of them are really bad servants and some are good servants. And the king will hold them accountable for how they've served in his time when he's ready to do that but for now we are here serving under the greatest king but then we know there are these earthly governments in our case federal government based in washington dc and then state government based here in our case in sacramento and then county government city government school boards things like that so layers of government but we if we've trusted in god through christ are children of the king and we can say, we're, we're encouraged because our government that we are serving above all is doing really well. Philippians 3.20, the Apostle Paul writes here, our citizenship is in heaven. That's a government term, right? From which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord, government term, Jesus Christ. So we're children of God, and he says here, as children of God, what? We speak differently than other people. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, or it could be translated, no complaining or arguing. Now, wait a second, isn't this what we do? Christians are kind of known sometimes being grumblers and disputers. Some of us are like the person I heard about who prayed this prayer. He prayed this prayer. He said, dear God, so far today, Lord, I've done all right. I haven't gossiped. I haven't even lost my temper. I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, or selfish. I'm very thankful for that, God. But in a few minutes, Lord, I'm going to get out of bed. (laughs) And from then on, I'm going to need a lot more help. Amen. (laughs) I mean, it's easy to start out the day grumpy today, Uh, especially if we turn on the news or look at, social media or follow what's happening in sacramento or in washington dc or the world and it can make us complain more and there are all kinds of things and in this case we're not sure what the philippians were grumbling and complaining about there probably were internal church matters that they were upset about but in recent years what the government does seems to be dividing churches churches are arguing and debating about who should we vote for in the next election and which policies do we follow, which ones we, do we not follow, or how do we follow them, and which perspective is right, and what do we do about those sinners, and all of that. And, and these concerns are dividing believers and splitting churches, and there's a lot to complain about. But the Apostle Paul says, no, let's not be caught up in grumbling and complaining. And I think it goes back to this idea that we're trusting the king. We can be different than the world. And I have to be careful about grumbling and complaining. So as I go to the Capitol, uh, maybe I turn off the radio of listening to talk radio. <laughs> you know, oh, they're yelling about the people in our state government. That doesn't help if I show up to share Christ with them, if I'm filled with rage toward them before I even get there, right? And same for all of us. We're called in First Timothy 2 and other passages to pray for government, pray for kings and all those in authority. Kind of hard to pray for them if we despise them and just can't even stand to hear their name, right? If we're filled with hatred towards them. Ooh, Lord, help me to filter complaining and arguing and direct it towards prayer. And it's fascinating to me to see how Jesus called all kinds of people to be his disciples. I just never get sick of this now as I've served in the Capitol. You know, as he called his apostles and disciples to follow him. Jesus called who? Men and women, which was quite shocking in his day. And then tax collectors, and zealots, you know, those were on opposite sides. Tax collectors were serving the Roman Empire, considered turncoats by the Jewish people. And then zealots were what the Jewish people often considered freedom fighters. The Romans considered them terrorists who were trying to destroy the Roman Empire. So Jesus called, people on extreme opposites of the political spectrum to follow him. Pharisees and Sadducees, Samaritans, prostitutes, sinners, and ultimately then even Gentiles of all kinds, Roman soldiers. Jesus was reaching out, preaching the good news of the kingdom, his kingdom, his rule and reign to all kinds of people who hated each other saying, come follow me. So when I go into the Capitol, I love it that I get to go to Republican, Democrat, people on the far left, people on the far right, people who are moderate. I get to go f- to, to people of every ethnicity, every background. I go to the people from inner city Los Angeles or, or the heart of San Francisco, and I go to the people who are the ranchers up in the hill country up here or all along the Sierras or way up north and who are farmers. And you know, I, I go to offices where it's, statues and pictures of Ronald Reagan everywhere. And then I go to the next office and it's pictures of Obama and another office of rainbow flags everywhere. And I go in and you know, my message is the same. I'm here to talk about Jesus. I'm here to, to talk about the kingdom of God. And one of the mistakes we often make as God's people, we assume, well, those people are fine. They're with God. It's those other ones who are really evil and wicked and aren't with God. And what's fascinating, I wish I could take you all with me or film it on a hidden camera, but then that would be the end of my ministry. <laughs> I wish you could see as I go to the offices and you would predict this one's going to receive Frank. They're going to want to talk about Jesus and they're not interested at all. And then I go in that one where you think, well, those people are going to throw him out and be so angry that he even came in and they're hugging me, thanking me, crying, asking for Bibles, saying, could we pray together? And I go, no one would believe it. The Spirit of God is just breaking through the categories, calling people to God's kingdom. Are they all responding? No, I mean, it takes time for people to open their heart to the Lord. And the Capitol is a very uh, difficult place for people to look to Him. But the Spirit of God's at work, and He is calling people of all kinds to follow Him. And I love our legislators Bible discussions because I look around the table sometimes and I'm just thinking, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the pleasure I have of seeing people from all these groups coming together, showing up. Now they're not all mature believers, quote, but they're coming together to seek the Lord. All we do is study through the word of God, verse by verse, book by book, this year in the book of Acts, before that two years in the book of John, just going through the word and talking about it and proclaiming the gospel. And I just I'm amazed at who shows up for that. Thank you, Lord, all kinds. So we are people who know that we are different. We're children of God unlike the others. We're we're speaking differently than other people, and we live differently. He says in verse 15 that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Blameless or faultless, innocent literally means unmixed, pure. It was a word that was used of pure wine, unalloyed metal, and then innocent. Remember, Jesus said, Matthew ten sixteen, "Be wary as serpents and as innocent as doves." And then Romans sixteen nineteen, Paul says, "I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil." So we should be living very differently than this world. It takes intentionality to do that. That is not easy to do. And we want to encourage each other, spur one another on. We don't have to know everything the sinners are doing. We don't have to get caught up in all that. We are different than this world. We're children of God. And so we remember where we are, we remember who we are, and all of that's important because of the third point, we remember what we're doing here. We have a different mission than the other people, than the people who don't walk with God. He says in verse 16, look at this. He says, Do all things, I'll start in 14 again, without grumbling or disputing, that may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So we're to hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast means to hold on to something tightly. Are we holding tightly, firmly to the word of God? That's the word of life. There was a homeless guy by the Capitol one day. I'd been there all day trying to share Christ with senators and assembly members. And it was a discouraging day that day. Some days it's like things are opening up. Other days it's like, oh boy, Lord, this is not easy. And as I walked out, there was a homeless guy sitting there reading a Bible. And I said, huh, is that a Bible you're reading? And he goes, he didn't even want to talk to me. Usually they were like, can I have a dollar or something like that? A lot of people, right? But this guy says, he just looked up. He was like, huh? I said, is that a Bible? He goes, oh, yeah. I go, And he goes back to looking at it. I go, you like reading that? Oh, yeah. This is my life. That's what he said. He was sitting on the ground, by the way, at a front of a coffee shop just across the street from the Capitol. This is my life. And then he went right back to reading it. I thought, how about that, Lord? How about that? You never know who's going to respond. God's calling all kinds of people to him but it's my life. That's how we should all feel about it. Holding fast to it. The word of life. Holding fast to the word of life refers to the good news of Jesus and the entire written word of God, the Bible. This is God's word. It gives us life. Deuteronomy 8.3 Man should not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. John 6.63 Jesus said, The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. And Jesus himself is the embodied word of life, 1 John 1. The word of life. The life was manifested and we've seen and bear witness. So we hold tightly to the word of life, it's our guide. But also, this word is interesting in the, the original Greek text apeko, the word hold fast to, but other translations translate it as hold forth. And you can see that in the King James Bible and other translations. And as you read commentaries, it's interesting, they just pick one or the other, holding fast to or holding forth. And it's because the word can be translated either way. It means to hold tightly to something and or to hold it out. And I think it's both in this case, perhaps. The context is that we're the light, it says, to the world, So, here's the light of Christ that we are holding on to so that we're shining, but then it's not just for us. Light goes out. We're to let our light shine. So, we hold on to and hold out the Word of God to people. And I love that. That's our primary mission. Hold on to and obey the Word of God and then offer it to a lost world. A darkened heart world. It's good to be involved in all kinds of things. People at the Capitol are involved in social improvement, politics. Those are all good. Sometimes people think that I'm saying, don't get involved in those ways because of what I do. No, everybody I reach out to at the Capitol, that's, that's their career. That's what they do. It's good to get involved. I encourage you to. And like me, you probably love the United States of America, and we pray for our country, and it's good to get involved in things. But above all, We are the ones who have a higher mission as children of God, right? We're we're serving the king of kings, and we are, it says, ambassadors of that king. Another government term. Ephesians 6.19, "...pray in my behalf," Paul says, "...that speech may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the good news, for which I am an ambassador in chains." And then in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And then 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you get it, it's a government term. You know what an ambassador is. An ambassador, the United States has ambassadors in countries all over the world. They represent our country there. They bring the message of our country to those countries. You so say, if you want to know what the U.S. thinks, our ambassador there will tell you. He speaks for us. Paul says, We're ambassadors in this world. And a lot of believers say they're fighting a culture war today. My response? I'm not fighting a culture war. I'm not fighting a war with anyone. I have a defensive battle going on where I have the armor of God on because I'm being attacked by an enemy, right? But instead of me being on the offensive with culture I am on a rescue mission. I'm here as an ambassador of a government that's doing fine to rescue people in a messed up government to say, come, be saved while there's time. On behalf of the highest government, I have a message to bring you. And it reminds me of, do you remember when the United States evacuated Afghanistan? How long ago was that? A couple years ago? And uh, the U.S. just pulled out of Afghanistan suddenly, all of our soldiers. And what a mess that was. I think everybody now agrees that went horribly wrong. Um, But I love the imagery that our soldiers were there, our U.S. military was there, saying to the Afghanis, if you want to get out, and you want to come to the U.S. or to Europe, get on a plane now. And there are pictures of soldiers calling people and guiding people and helping women and children. And some at night with flashlights come this way. What a noble thing our soldiers did to rescue people there. And many of them, made it out of that country. And because the mission was botched, many didn't. And it was a costly mission, as you may remember. 13 U.S. service members were killed in a bomb attack. And that included a Marine named Nicole G. from Roseville, where I live. And it included Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews here of Folsom. Maybe some of you know Tyler personally. He lost an arm and a leg. He didn't die, but he lost an arm and a leg. He still has shrapnel in his body from that bomb. And he testified to U.S. Congress just about a week and a half ago about the withdrawal. And he said it was a catastrophe. And he said, I see the faces of all those we could not save, those we left behind. But what, what a heroic thing, what a noble thing those soldiers did to help those people, putting their life at risk. Some gave their life to rescue. And there's an image of... of the Marine, Tara G, who died from Roseville. And one of the last pictures of her was her carrying a baby and guiding a family to safety to one of the airplanes. Uh, That image, I think, is a good representation of what we're seeing portrayed in Philippians 1 here. That we are lights to the world telling people, come now! Come now! Here's the Word of God. This is all going down. It's temporary here. Get out now while you can. Be saved. Be rescued. And what a noble thing we get to do. What an honorable thing we get to do as servants of the king. And what a wonderful message. And I rejoice that I could see as I serve in the capital, and you could see as you represent the Lord, God at work. And we shine as lights in the world, it says, as we do this. Again, that imagery of holding out the lights. The word lights here is actually the word phosteris. It's luminaries used for the stars and the sun. And of course, Jesus is called the light. John 1.4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 8.12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. When we open our heart to him, 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, his light shines in our heart. Colossians 1.13 says, when we're, Trusting in Him, He rescues us from the domain of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We go from darkness to the kingdom of light. And then we're to let that light shine, Jesus said, Matthew 5, before other people. In First Peter two nine, He says, You're to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And then Daniel 12.3 uses this imagery of stars also. It says, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the firmament, And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So notice, it's a light that God uses to encourage us and then to rescue others. We're not laser beams to zap all the sinners. God will deal with sin. There's a judgment day coming. But for now, we're there to rescue. I like how a pastor named Vance Havner put it years ago. He said... We are not going to move this world by criticism of it nor conformity to it but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the spirit of god I'm going to read that again we're not going to move this world by criticism of it nor conformity to it but by combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. And as we do that, the Spirit of God calls many to Him. And that's our mission. And we must not forsake our mission, to hold on to the Lord, to His word, and to offer it out to the world. William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, which at the time was an evangelistic movement, said, God has sent you into this dark valley for nothing less than to raise these doom-struck creatures from the dead. That is your mission. To stop short of this will be disastrous and everlasting calamity. Well, now we know God is sovereign. He's going to accomplish his work. But what a privilege we have to be a part of rescuing people from darkness, bringing them into the light. And second century preacher named Origen said, the communities of God, talking about churches, to which Christ has become a teacher and guide, are in comparison with communities of the pagan people among whom they live as strangers, like heavenly lights in the world. That's us. It was true in the second century when Origen wrote. It was true in the first century when the Apostle Paul was writing the Philippians, and it's true for us today. We're lights to the world. So as people have said, instead of cursing the darkness, turn on the light. We don't want to run away from the sinners. We want to get around them to let people know about the Lord. This was Paul's approach. I love how here in Philippians, and we'll conclude here shortly, he says in Philippians 1.13, he says, My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Or the Imperial Guard. These were like the Secret Service agents. He's like, They're interested in the Lord. Can you believe it? And then Philippians 4.22, as he concludes the letter there, gets to the end of it. What is he excited about? He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Woo! I mean, we miss the impact of that. I think the Philippians are reading that going, wait, what? Caesar's household? Who's that? Like, Paul doesn't even define her. Is that his family members? Is that Caesar's servants? I mean, this is the ruler of the, the world, the emperor who is the most evil man on earth. His family and people who work with him are greeting us, meaning they're hearing about the gospel and they're interested? What? Wow. Thank you, Lord. But if you're like me, you might sometimes say, well, there's so much darkness. How can my little light make any difference? Well, remember, we're stars for the Lord. When do stars shine their brightest? When it gets dark. I grew up in the Los Angeles area. Anybody grew up in Southern California, you go out to look at the stars, you could see one, maybe two. I'd be like, "What's so impressive? There's the star." But then, when I was uh, college age, part of a church group, and we went on a backpacking trip to the top of Mount Whitney. And I was there with this group camped out, laying out under the stars. At night and it was a clear clear night in August when the meteor shower was happening I couldn't sleep I'm in my sleeping bag looking up at the sky I'm saying Lord I had no idea there's so many in fact the sky was more white with stars than it was black Lord praise you praise you this is astounding now you get to see more of that up here but I couldn't believe it how the stars were showing themselves because it was dark outside. That's increasingly, I think, what's happening in our world. As the world is getting darker, you are just going to shine brighter. People are going to see something different in you and be inspired to praise God or by his grace, maybe to be open to hearing about God so that they will ultimately praise him. So let's keep shining in a dark world. Father, thank you that we have this privilege to do so. And we rejoice in you that you've made it entirely possible through your spirit who's at work in us. Through the rescuing that you've done for us, through Jesus our Savior and our Lord. It's in his name we pray these things and praise you. Amen.